Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, good evening, Seattle. Hello, Puget Sound, and welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy and the general of geology. Heck, I like rocks. I've been a rock collector Gosh, since my uh, early days, I'm not sure that tells you something about me. I think it just shows that I am a curious about the world and, of course, about our past, because that's what rocks are all about. It's all about the past. And uh, we can talk about the present today, because I was checking out uh, PBS, uh, our local um, public television stations. We have several here, uh, Tacoma, I think, Bellingham, and, and Seattle, of course. And there was a show, um, Nick on the Rocks. You know, it sounds like a cocktail, actually, which <laughs> caught my eye. Um, but really, I've got a, a great admiration for my pal Kevin Pogue. Uh, he's out at um, Whitman University in uh, Walla Walla, uh, and he has done an amazing thing to help out uh, our understanding of the uh, the terroir of Washington State, and I assume uh, Nick uh, Zentner, who is uh, at Central Washington University for some 30 years, also has a great perspective on it. The show is really neat. Um, we're going to welcome Nick right now. Hey, Nick Zentner, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you, Christopher. It's great to be speaking with you this afternoon. My pleasure. Glad you can join us on this uh, uh, early Saturday evening. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about you. Uh, you are a... I'm a geology instructor. I've been here at Central Washington University in Ellensburg for a long, long time now, 30 years, and I still enjoy it very much. Fantastic. Uh, you Did you get into rocks at an early age, or were you looking for a major back in college, and you said, uh, you know, they used to say jocks for rocks, right, or rocks for jocks? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the answer is B. Uh, it, it's, it's stumbling onto it in college, and, and most geologists I know, including Kevin, by the way, who... Uh, is a buddy of mine. Uh, we all found geology by accident. Nobody goes to college that I know of that, that has a specific interest in geology. You know, there's this interest in geology as a young kid. You're collecting fossils or dinosaurs or whatever, and then it kind of goes away. And, and uh, for some of us, it, it comes back in our lives in our early 20s. Uh, that's fun. Did you? What were some of the first experiences? And are you a Washington guy, or are you like a Montana guy? I know Montana has some fossils, and Utah has fossils. Did, did you go to school locally? I did not. I grew up in Wisconsin and uh, grew up on a farm and uh, ran out of money when I was going to the University of Wisconsin, so I took a train out to Glacier Park in Montana, and that's where I ah. stumbled into the geology thing, and it was all... All official after that. Once I got a taste of the mountains and some of those cool concepts, uh, I went back to Wisconsin and took a 101 class, and the rest is history. <laughs> Just like rocks are all about history. There you go. Uh, it's, right. uh, it's really cool to know how many great Wisconsinites are, uh, are here in Washington State. I, of course, am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, you are? That's right, Wisconsin. I got a bunch of uh, I got some beer history in me. Um, so cool. So you uh, landed a job as a professor, or did you work your way up at Central Washington? 
Uh, I, I got out of yeah, I got out of grad school, and uh, I found that my interest and my talent was attracting people to geology. And so my first job was back in Ohio, and I kind of was just a lecturer person, and I, you know, built the program up by attracting a bunch of kids at, at the geology 101 level. And then uh, we really missed the West, and so I I just started writing letters to all the universities in the Pacific Northwest and the school here in Ellensburg was willing to give me a try. And, and uh, that's still my main role after all these years, I don't do any research. I don't have university committees to serve on. I just, uh, spread the gospel as it were. And, uh, it's not only teaching now in classes, but about 10 years ago, I started doing some of this outreach for the public because I knew there was interest in this stuff. And I'm just trying to, feed the interest that's already there. Awesome. Well, I, I again, like I said, I was uh, um, a rock collector. I, I learned fossils. I thought that was so cool. And I do remember some of the things in my early high school geology classes. Uh, igneous, metamorphic, and sedimentary. Are those the three rock, uh, what do you call them? What, what are those called? Those are different kinds of rocks, the three rock classifications. Yeah. You've been an A so far, Christopher. <laughs> Keep going now. Okay, well, um, I should stop there, uh, I guess, because we have volcanic would be the uh, igneous part, and, of course, uh, tectonic plates would be pressure, I would imagine, or is that also igneous because they're pushing lava up? Um, and sedimentary really is marine sediment, which we would talk about the chalk basin from Paris to, uh, or from Champagne to London. Um, and of course, oh. and here we are, volcanic activity, and um, and also, I guess it's alluvial or sedimentary too, because we have what Luss in uh, Washington State. That's windblown, but what would that be classified as? Well, if if you were just uh, faced with those three choices, it would I guess you'd throw it into sedimentary, but it's really not sedimentary rock. Yeah, that Luss is a real interesting topic, and and that's one of our our new episodes this winter featuring Kevin Pogue, who uh, I managed to get on camera, and he was very cooperative and helpful. Uh, but there's a whole story with the Luss uh, that I think is fascinating, and it involves kind of some recent research. Interesting. I, we, my family has a vineyard there in Walla Walla, and oh. uh, we are in the Blue Mountains uh, on Old Mill Creek Lane, just past uh, Abeja and Kay and next to uh, Walla Walla Vintners. And our soil is, is like four feet, five feet, I don't know, 15 feet of lust. It's nuts. It's, it, it is. It's, it's so messy, but it's so pristinely fine and just it's like uh, makeup powder, if you will. Yes, that's a that's a great description. I wish I had that. That I, I could have used that in that little episode. That that's a great way to describe it. You know, we we uh, there's there's uh, well, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but it, there there is uh, uh, there's been a mystery for a long time to why that makeup powder exists. Like, why is it so thick? In some places, it's over two hundred feet. Oh my! Of this of this lus sitting on top of these of uh, these basalt bedrock uh, units and the. The the fascinating thing that I don't think most people understand is that um, usually when you have soils, it's just the underlying bedrock that's being broken down. But in this case, with the Palouse or any place that you have this loose in eastern Washington, the soils have nothing to do with the underlying bedrock. The chemistry of the loose is nothing like the chemistry of the basalt bedrock down below. So the question for years and years was, where the hell did all this stuff come from? And the answer is uh, the ice sheet itself, which came across the border from Canada, uh, and you could throw in a few alpine glaciers, but it's mostly the ice sheet from Canada that just ground rock 
down to the consistency of kitchen flour and then got blue. Uh, the, the winds blew that loose away from the uh, glaciated area into the areas nearby. Man, I wonder whether there must have been some massive dust storms, or do you think it was really a, a slow, methodical process of just sort of day-to-day temperatures rising and winds coming up and, th- and thermal, things like that? I'd go with the slow version. It's tough to quantify that, but uh, there's no... That that loess is so clean and homogenous, and there's there's no real layering necessarily. So, you you can't come up with kind of catastrophic uh, interpretations, in my opinion. And so, yes, it's just kind of a gradual breaking down of these rocks, having windstorms on occasion, sending stuff away. If you want to get into the details of it, it's actually probably meltwater coming off the front of the ice sheet, like in northern Washington, and then the water kind of gets evaporated away, and then the winds can come across these kind of outwash plains, we call them, and and blow the the loose uh, further to the south. But really, worldwide, any any, the the huge loose accumulations... uh, are are usually associated with big glaciated areas and that's the correlation. So I don't know what what your drinkers or what your customers or your listeners think if they've heard the fact that these soils in eastern Washington are so fantastic cuz they're volcanic. Uh that's really not the story. There's not tons of volcanic ash in the Lewis. It's it's or 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 the wheat fields or whatever else you want to pedal. I I think that's that's kind of silly. To be honest, it's it's more just the consistency, <laughs> it's the texture of that of your makeup powder that 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 is the key the key thing that we that we talk about. Well, I know that uh, in Austria they use the term lus a lot because they've got all these wine regions which uh, have a formidable amount of that particular soil type, uh, windblown mm. soils. And uh, I'm curious. It reminds me of clay because it can get really wet and really muddy, so to speak. Um, is is lust considered a, a very water retentive uh, substance? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the way that I teach it, and I think it's as accurate as can be, is that the grain size in the loess is just perfect. In fact, in our little episode of, of this show, we call it the Goldilocks of soils. If the particles were a little bit smaller than they are, then they would be truly like clay, and the water could not percolate down through. So you'd have ponding, you'd have, uh, you know, the, the, the soils would be too wet, essentially, uh, for your industry. And I don't know much about your industry, but that's as far as I, I go. If <laughs> if the grain sizes were a little bit bigger than the loose particles, uh, then they'd be sand, and the water would drain completely through, and there'd be no water retention. So it's it's this it's this perfect grain size and again, if you've got the 20 feet at your place and 50 feet someplace else and 100 feet of this list someplace else, you've got just the right grain size to hold the water the right amount but not pond the water so that uh, you can get some drainage going as well. That's significant for our family vineyard there because uh, we are dry farmed, the first Washington uh-huh. vineyard in uh, the state to be dry farmed without irrigation. So that's significant. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering... Uh, is it a very is it um, a ferrous stone or a ground stone because it's very red? Is that just part of refraction or reflection or something like that? But I'm curious what the why the color is consistently red or brown. I don't know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> the the basalt down below has a lot of iron in it, but as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, 
generally, the the mineral content in the loess is more like granite. It's got lighter colored minerals and, and really not iron rich minerals. So um, I don't know the the reddish or brownish angle to it. The loess I'm more familiar with is is kind of a kind of a light tan. Uh, in some cases, even lighter than that. So the the browns and reds uh, might be something local that your yeah. that your property has. Interesting. Um, when you take a microscope and look at a grain of lus or whatever we call it, a particle, um, is there a specific shape? Is it Does it look like a piece of sand, but only a little smaller? Uh, I don't have firsthand experience with that. I, I don't think they're rounded. I think they're kind of angular. Uh, they're silt-sized particles, so uh, it's right. kind of the consistency of kitchen flour. Yeah. And those those typically are not little rounded grains. But uh, uh, I can't say with certainty the shapes uh, involved, but I would go towards the angular end of the spectrum. Understood. Well, let's talk about yeah. the show. You've, uh, sure. You have a, a series, a, a season. Um, tell us about the show. It's called Nick on the Rocks. And what time and what subjects are you uh, highlighting? Well, we're having a lot of fun making these little programs. They're short, first of all. They're five minutes long. So they, they're, they're put in... Uh, at the top, right before the top of the hour, essentially. So KCTS in Seattle and KYV in Yakima, and now we've expanded to all of Oregon with Oregon Public Broadcasting in Spokane. They're just throwing these programs in wherever they need a little filler. Uh, so we're catching people kind of uh, as they're waiting for their show to show up at the top of the hour, I guess, uh, if you're a TV viewer. Um, the The emphasis is sharing these wonderful geology stories in the Pacific Northwest, not just Washington, but all through the Pacific Northwest. And our our approach is to take a drone, get as many eye-catching scenics from the air as possible, uh, make that landscape come to life visually, and then it's easy for me to throw in some geology content to uh, kind of help people understand some of the excitement there. But this is not an in-depth geology program by any means. You can think of them as little appetizers. And, yeah. And the, the new season starts on uh, Thursday, January 24th. Perfect. Hey, what's your website, Nick? NickZentner.com. Awesome. Hey, what a treat. Thanks so much for sharing some time, and congratulations on your snippets. Uh, I look forward to meeting you sometime on Happy Hour Radio. Same here, Chris. Thanks for the uh, invite. Stick around, folks. Be right back. Tune it in and turn it up. Cruise home with Kirby. The Kirby Wilbur Show, live and local. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m., KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for, um, we're going to Greek out on some wine. <laughs> With my pal Stephen Brown, certified sommelier and uh, member of the Society of Wine Educators. That means he's uh, learning about all the good juice that's around the world and how it's made and who makes it and uh, what makes it so special. And what's always fun is that I've never been to the uh, Adriatic Sea, the Aegean Sea, um, or the GMC. <laughs> I have been to the GYM, though, recently, which is really fun. But they don't serve any wine over there. And uh, Stephen Brown, um, he's an expert in Greek wine or at least uh, I think he is. Um, let's get him to the show. Hey, Stephen Brown, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. All right, so uh, tell me, when did you have your first sip of wine in life? 
Uh, first sip of wine was probably when my dad, who's in the military, we were stationed in Naples as kids. Oh. And, uh, you know, wine is ubiquitous, part of the Italian culture. Kids get the watered-down version, and, you know, that was probably my first sip of, of wine. Excellent. And was it red or white? Of course, it was, was red. It? Yeah, okay. Yeah. The That's whites didn't hold up back then. Napoli, huh? Yeah. Uh, fun. What? Uh, when did you break away from the uh, military lifestyle and, and land in Seattle? Well, we, um, my dad finally finished up uh, being stationed in the D.C. area, and uh, that's where I met my wife, who is uh, originally from Spokane. All her family's here. Uh, happy wife, happy life. I now live on the West Coast. I live in Seattle, and uh, it's been great. I like it here. Excellent. You now represent a wonderful portfolio of Greek wines. What drew you to uh, this far outreach and original bastion of all winemaking viticulture? Um. With this wine, uh, particularly, it was the ethic. I no longer draw sort of geographical, geological, uh, mission-based wines. Uh, what I really look for is an ethic. So I usually drink a lot of Burgundy. I like that you grow your grapes. I like that you do it as natural as possible. I like that you're doing wild yeasts. I like, you know, your ethic. And when I tasted these wines uh, in a portfolio that was uh, in Seattle, um, I knew immediately that these people had the deal. So it wasn't about Greek. It wasn't about for Crete, which is where these from. It's about the ethic. It's about the humanity. It's about what they're doing at the winery that matters to me. What's interesting is that we've actually had a, a pretty qualitative Greek population here. I know that the St. Demetrio's Greek Festival has been going on for as long as I can remember. I think it started in the 70s, if not earlier. I didn't get here till 72, and I probably wasn't reading that part of the paper at the time. Uh, but we've had some fantastic runs with uh, uh, Greek restaurants. Of course, there was that crazy one at the base of Mercer and Queen Anne Hill. I think it was uh, O Merezi or... Yep. Yeah. It was there, Costa Sopa and Ballard, a Costa, few. Oh, and Costa Sopa. Yeah, wasn't there yeah. another Costa uh, right on uh, Fremont? Yep, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So l- lots of fun. I think it, it really was always an experience to have the, the, the Greek style with the, the garlic, the yogurt, the... The, um, the souvlakis and, and uh, uh, is baklava Greeks? I always like that. It, it's arguable. It's you know the Turks will say they gave it to the uh, Greeks, but right. you know it's one of those. Okay. Well, um, I certainly have enjoyed uh, Greek food, and uh, I long to um, you know visit those pristine, beautiful aquamarine waters and uh, really dig into the idea of sunshine and and some history, of course. Uh, but your what's the name of the portfolio you represent? The winery, it's really one winery. Um, it's Lyrarakis, L-Y-R-A-R-A-K-I-S, so Lyrarakis, if you can't roll your R's. Lyrarakis. Yeah, and a little note on that. When you see a Greek last name that has Akis on the end of it, they tend to be from Crete, so like Zach Galifianakis, the actor. So when you see an Akis, Crete's where they hail from. Okay, that's good to know. Well, let's talk about the island of Crete. Tell me how... Many indigenous grapes are um, propagated there on the island. Um, it's interesting. We have um, probably six that are autochthonous indigenous originating on Crete, um, and then others that are indigenous to all of Greece. Um, the winery focuses on those autochthonous indigenous grapes, which is uh, something that I care about. They don't import Italian grapes or um, French grapes looking for international validity. They've realized that they have a treasure trove of their own to explore. Recently in town, there was a uh, Greek wine road show. There was a master of wine who spoke, and he referred to Greece as the Jurassic Park of Vetus vinifera oh. because everything in Western Europe is known. 
phylloxera didn't really wipe out the vineyards in Greece. So there are there are varietals that are yet to be identified. Americans weren't going there at the time. We were, well, you know, rocks. There's a lot of rocks and a lot uh, of dryness, and phylloxera right. just doesn't like crossing mountains and, and sand. And, the root louse. Yeah, root louse. Yeah, uh, Washington's blessed. Washington doesn't have a lot of phylloxera in eastern Washington either due to the sand, the dryness, et right. cetera. Yeah. That's good, even though we have irrigation here. Uh, so I'm looking at it. Araracus by Liraracus. That's a Greek L. So oh, that is would it? be the lot. Yeah. So. Lambda. Yeah, that's a I lambda. Get it. So All yeah, right. hey, that's what And I'm not a Greek, nor I do I play one on radio. But uh it's again it's the ethic of the wine that that you know really brought me to it. Well, fantastic. So, um, again, let's talk about some of the names. I think what always hinders people from really diving into a Greek wine and being able to feel confident about it uh, is discussing the name, is really learning how to pronounce it. I had a, a hard time for a long time until I, I got serious about it. And so Mavro Daphne, Assertico, uh, Sinomavro, uh, it's all about the accent. And I find that it's all about where you put the, uh, um, what do you call it, the uh um, emphasis on which we try to say emphasis. It's where you put the emphasis <laughs> on, on the uh, on the syllables. You know, I'm sommelier at Omega Uzeri. I train the staff. We I deal with customers all the time. And you know, if you just pronounce it the way you would pronounce it, that's great. No one expects you to have the the accent down. Uh, but you know, they're some they're multisyllabic. And you know, Americans love two syllable you know words. They'll do three syllables in Italian. You get beyond that, and you're in trouble. So there goes the uh, the German Austrian Greek connection to grapes. A little more work, but uh, it pays off. Interesting. As much as I believe I know about wine, and I I don't know enough or way too much. Uh, looking at some of these grape varieties is I've never seen them. So uh, Plato and uh, Thrapasathiri, Sathiri, Thrapasathiri, and Plato, and that's called Plato, 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 Valana. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I see the Daphne, which I have never tried. I've had Mavro Daphne, but I, I say that's the dark version. But as we spoke earlier that off air, it, it was, they're not related. Right. Daphne's a grape that was recently sort of rediscovered um, along the lines of the story of, like, Falangina or Malagusia. Very few cuttings left. They realized the potential in it. They started spreading it. So Daphne... Um, will be uh, a grape that the world will know. It's an amazing grape. It's actually the grape uh, that made me want to work with this winery. Um, <clears throat> the one we'll taste today is actually the only 100% bottling in the world. There's still very few hectares of this this vine planted. Wow. For a, re- uh, for a moment, I thought it was uh, related to Scooby-Doo. Not quite. Not that, Daphne. Not that, no, Daphne. no. Not the nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, nerds, though. Not, not like this and nerds. So. Well, I like your glasses. Thank <laughs> you. Thank she you. had the round spectacles. They're good radio so. glasses. They are beautiful radio glasses. Uh, well, I'm excited. Well, give me a website so people out there, if they're checking it out and you know have some time, they're riding shotgun, they can look at their phone and look at the website as we talk about this on this beautiful Saturday night here in Seattle. Yeah, it's uh, lirarakis.com, so L-Y-R-A-R-A-K-I-S.com, and it's an amazing website. It's really well put together, and you'll get a real sense of the wine, and, and more importantly, the the humans, the people involved. I, I've often, my one of my new mantras is I want to take the celebrity out of wine and put the humanity back into it, and it's really a, a human-driven and place-driven winery, and uh, as jaded as I am, I still end up with a smile on my face when I deal with these people. It's wonderful. <laughs> How many wineries are on Crete? Oh, uh, quite a few. Yeah. I mean, there's been wine production there forever. The Minoans, uh, you know, have, I mean, Greece has to have wine. The Mediterranean world, everybody makes wine. So it's been vineyards 
forever. And literally, this family has always been there, probably back to the Minoan times. Uh, there are people, you know, they just, that's where they from. It's almost as if they sprung from the earth there with the vines, and their their culture is, you know, deeply rooted. Okay. Uh, to- so I haven't got to Greece yet in my MS studies, and I'm sure this will be uh, a great um, aperitif to learn, dive into that region once I get there. But the what sea is, is basically commanding the whole all the islands? Are there several seas? Is well, you're it- in the Greater Mediterranean Sea. Okay. The Aegean Sea, slightly, you know, exactly to the north, and what's called the Libyan Sea to the south, which is really the the between North Africa and the island of Crete, which is a long east west island, and I believe the fifth largest island in the and Mediterranean. It's, and it's southern, right? So it's, yeah, it's south, it's even more warm, and, and more warm, but very high altitude. And when you say high altitude, obviously being an island, you're thinking that um, basically it starts at sea level. How, how much higher could you go? Uh, oh, uh, the mountains are snow-capped. There are three distinct uh, oh, wow. elevations there, and they are snow-capped through the spring. And how, how would we uh, compare the island of Crete? What is it uh, the island of Vashon? Is it the... Oh, it's bigger than that, right? It's probably it's it's a lot bigger. The fifth largest, the fifth you largest. Said. Yeah, it's uh, I believe it's about a hundred sixty miles uh, long, and I believe about thirty miles um, to thirty to fifty. Wa- at this, is widest. there one side of the island, the north side or south side, with the exposure you want for vineyards? That's the beauty of the island. One thing geologically, it's part of three different geological push-ups, so three different distinct sort of elevation mountain ranges, none of which are volcanic. Um, so and you're dealing with a great amount of soil type, and then you have the none south of which side. is volcanic. None of no Santorini to the north volcanic, but Crete is all uh, you know basically plate tectonics pushing up. Interesting, and on a little island. I mean, so basically that happened a long time ago. Then the island broke off, is what I, I it, would it was, imagine. It probably was almost three different islands as the push-ups happened, and yeah. then it became. One, it's an amazing place. And to the south, it's bone dry. It looks like Phoenix with blue water right there. And to the north, the Mediterranean. Strip malls, you mean? Not, not that bad. Not yet. Hopefully never. Awesome. Hey, I'm speaking with Stephen Brown uh, with Loracus Winery from Crete in Greece, uh, the country of Greece. Stick around. We're going to drive into some wines uh, coming up on Happy Hour Radio. Two regular guys separated by 20 years and a full head of hair. Mark Lee and Van Camp. Weekdays 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. And you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Somalier, Christopher Chan. Hey, Seattle, welcome back. Time for round three. And I happen to have three glasses of wine in front of me, so I'm pretty much set. And my pal Stephen Brown, a certified Somalier, who is the uh, Somalier at... Omega Uzeri on and Capitol Hill. Yeah, is that on, what's the street between, with an H, between, right? Yeah, Pike. It's on 14th between Pike and Pine. Pike and Pine. Okay. Uh, and I know that you actually had a very high-end wine dinner there um, a couple months ago for La Chaine de Rotisseur, which I heard was a, a great experience. And we don't often think about, Greek food tends to be very bold with the garlic and just, you know, uh, grilling and, and lamb. Um, and we never think about, we always think about pairing wines with this sort of a French kind of um, formality. But it's fun to see that 
like any other place in the world, if it grows there and it's eaten there, it pairs there. Yeah, right? it grows there. If it goes with it, grows with it, it goes with it. That's it. All right. Well, we have two white wines in front of me and a red that we'll uh, look forward to tasting. What's the first white wine? The first wine is a grape called Vilana, which is, I think, going to be the workhorse white of the island of Crete. I compare it very much to uh, what Chardonnay does in Burgundy, say a Bourgogne Blanc with, without oak, an oakless um, white. Uh, these wines, uh, this series that we're going to taste are all single vineyard and single varietal, so no blending, and they're real statements of terroir altitude, etc. Vilana, a um, little more aromatic, a little more neutral. It is aromatic. It reminded me, my first whiff was like a gruner. It just had some of that um, celery uh, root uh, note, and I get the Chardonnay point, too, because it, it has some of that, I don't know, there's a certain smell that goes with Chardonnay, because I think they they make it a certain way or get some lease contact or something. Yeah, I'll often put this uh, wine blind into uh, into the tasting groups paired with other sort of Chablis Premier Cru, and it does quite well. The color isn't right, um, but as far as like the quality level, um, that's natural acidity, which is high. It has a high phenolic um, uh, mouth feel. Um, Albarino in there too. It's yeah. That's that's basically you know where I pair it. You know I look at wine. My personal belief as a sommelier is is I satisfy a need and I have the world to pick from to satisfy that need. And this wine satisfies so many needs. Wow, um, what a texture! This is an expansive wine, and even this has got a slight chill on it, which I appreciate. Acid seems medium plus. I'm pushing high, but. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of lees contact here. I think you got probably five months, four months of lees. Yep. Some stirring, exactly. perhaps. Yep. And um, and wild yeast. That's another focus of the winery that I really respect and prefer. You know, they're not afraid to work without a net. So when I think of wild yeast, I always think that they're they're voracious. They're just eating more sugar and <laughs> farting out alcohol a lot faster than a. Um, uh, cultivated Saccharomyces cerevisiae. I mean, it's- well, I, you know, I look at it, I think of it as, as a fisherman. Um, a, a wild um, steelhead fights a lot better than a hatchery steelhead. <laughs> right. And if you're inoculating, you're kind of using, you know, lab yeasts. But a wild yeast, yeah, brings other components and other vigor into the wine. This one, so this is called... V- Vilana is Vilana. the grape type, and it's from the Pyrovolicus vineyard. Pyrovolicus. Yeah, yeah. All right. Volana, the name comes from, I mean, whenever I think of Greece, I think of mythology, of course, and so I wonder how many terms have been sort of, this was an ode to the goddess of, you know, waterfalls, I don't know. You know, they're they're chock full of goddesses. In fact, just above the winery is the mountain uh, where the cave is, where Zeus was born. So there are stories everywhere. There are, there is that that. is Zeus is a caveman. Yeah, he's a cave guy, you know. (laughs) He was he was he was hanging out there, but that's where he was born. He you know he had to be hidden from from uh, the Titans, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so yeah, it's chock full of it, and I love that about the Greek culture. Stories about Hercules, stories about you know. Uh, I'm surprised we everybody. haven't seen that on a wine label yet. I mean, it would it, like aspire like Transformers could be on it, but they would they would say you're gearing towards children. Um, we could have like Hercules and uh, Apollo and uh, Hades. And- well, you know, Hercules, uh, one of his um, claims to fame was was slaying the Nemean lion, 
and the wine region of Nemea. In, in Nemea, right Nemea. there in northern Greece, yeah. So uh, they say that the wines there have that power and depth and richness because it grows best where the blood of that lion was yes, spilled. Yes, I thought you were going to say a little sanguine. You know, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, you have to think about it. There's a little iron content in that soil, which is very, you know, close. So All sometimes right. myths have a basis in unexplainable, you know, truths. Okay, so the name of this wine, again, it's a single vineyard, Volana grape. Volana's the grape. And uh, it comes from Liracus. Yep. Liracus. And it's it's done insanely well. This wine has been by the glass at Hartwood Provisions, Matt's at the Market, where people are eating. It's not only owned by Greece, but if you're doing fresh vegetables, if you're cutting back on like butter I and fat, that. using more olive oil, if you're going with seafood, you're going yeah. healthier and brighter, vigorous flavors. These wines are amazingly good for what I call you know Seattle cuisine. And who uh, who carries these wines as a retail? Oh, uh, retail right now. Uh, this one is at Vif. They're our latest placement, and you know that uh, uh, little wine shop um, in Fremont is incredibly particular. Uh, also about their ethic. They want it as natural as possible, organic as possible, biodynamic as possible. And so we qualify for that, and I'm very proud of that one. But, um, you know, Bin 41 in West Seattle. Hey, right. Uh, you know, Shout uh, out. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the great, any of the, the better shops. John uh, and Miss, T. Mr. McCarthy up at McCarthy oh, Sharing Queen good. Anne. So we're wine lovers. Uh, I'm thinking price point is 18. Yeah. Right. right in there. Okay. Because yeah. uh, it, it's definitely, I mean, that Greece is a f- far away place. Yeah, and when you compare it to, which it does compare well to, say, a Sancerre or a, or a Chablis, it's a half to a third of the price. Yeah, you're right. And um, I, I, that's a good one. I'd like to get some of those bottles because I think it, it could fill that niche of, of broadening my uh, palate to where I'm practicing tasting something in between two classics, which uh, was, I think can help me really d- define it, because we were in those blind tastings. I mean, for all we know, the, they w- could throw something like that in it. Well, I, I know that in the last year, um, there's been two groups of Master Sommeliers visiting for educational purposes, and they did stop by our winery. Um, Jeff Kruth, um, the mighty Jeff Kruth, Master Sommelier, gave Lerodakis specifically a shout-out on his end-of-the-year podcast, and I'm told that Greece will now be included into into the tasteable varietals, um, probably two grapes. I'm told that. I haven't seen it yet. But, I know that's going to be a Certico. But that's, it'll be a Certico, and I'm told that it'll be Xenomavro. Probably, yeah. I get that part. Okay, great. Um, so it's available at McCarthy's, Vif, and uh, Bin 41. Next wine is also a white wine. What do we have here? This is an amazing wine. Chris, you haven't put your nose in it when you will. I wish they could see your face. This wine is the wine that made me want this job. As a sommelier, every day we, we basically stack the same Legos. Peach, pear, apple, oak, no oak, yeast, the same ones. And then you taste this wine. This wine is so high in terpenes, uh, which gives us that uh, uh, piney, floral, cedar note. It's not an aromatized wine. That's what this great Cannabis tastes like. note. <laughs> this is a gin lover's white wine. Wow. The first thing I got was like, terp- it's just terpenes. It reminded me of, um, I wanted to say, uh, what's it, Rex, uh, what's the pine pine wine? Oh, Retsina. Retsina, yeah. Yeah, uh, it, only because it has that sort of cedar note, but so much rosemary, so much lavender. This wine is like the Garrigue of the of the Provence times 10. The Garrigue of um, Greece. Now, now, that is very aromatic, but on the palate, it goes right back to those beautiful pear apple, very clean on the finish. But if you're doing anything with um, fresh herbs, fresh basil, beautiful rosemary, this wine is begging for it. This this is the wine that chefs love the most. When I taste this with a chef, 
who drives the oh, wine I'm program. Sure. Yeah. I just watch their I shut up and I watch their heads explode like a Peter Max cartoon. It's it's amazing. You can just see them, you know, what can I do with this? That's and really I, I neat. Love this wine. Yeah, this and wine I'm is so cool. I'm not a huge cool. Sauvignon Blanc fan. I mean, occasionally I like a Sancerre, but um even white Bordeaux, but I'm never turned on. I'm not a New Zealand guy. I'm just too gamey, grassy, fierce. But this has just enough of that ethereal kind of um, uh, terpenic note and some of the phenols are really more pleasant to me because it's not overpowering. Uh, on the palate, it's a uh, slightly generous wine. It actually has great length uh, length, and uh, breadth on the palate. I get the peach. Um, I get uh, yellow apple, touches of green apple, and a lemon-lime kind of thing. I find it has a mouthfeel, too, of uh, uh, like Viognier, like a, like a good condry, kind of an oilier Nice mouthfeel. And, glycerin and, here, so yeah. if you love Viognier, if you love Gewürztraminer, if you love Grenache, if you love the aromatic wines, you're, you can't not fall in love with this one. It, it has a place. It, I mean, it definitely has. But I'm excited about this. And this is the only bottling 100% made. And it's, again, the grape? Uh, the grape on this one is Daphne. D-A-F-N-I. the Daphne. Yeah, which means uh, bay leaf or laurel leaf. Uh, and when you smell that, it's bay leaves. It's right there. Again, chefs, chefs just love this wine. Uh, there's a great olive note through it too. Is I mean, it's just got that the savory green tinge. It's not sort of you know uh, jalapeno or things like that that are really bright and uh, purezenic. Um, yeah. This is uh, a delicious wine. So this, I would assume, this is in the twenty-five dollar range or thirty dollar no, range. Same as the Villana. Really? Yeah. Even for a wine that rare, that lauded, um, you know, the great Jancis Robinson, you know, loves these wines. Are these uh, by the glass at? Uh Oh, Omega? Um, oh, of course. Yeah. Excellent. Well, then I'm definitely coming in because I'm really excited about these wines. I think they're well-made, they're delicious, they're interesting, and certainly palatable. Uh, speaking with Stephen Brown, the certified sommelier, who is the sommelier at uh, Omega Ozeri. Ozeri. And we have the red wine, which I'm super excited to taste. Uh, it looks like uh, black red, and uh, we'll find out what that is when we return here on Happy Hour Radio. Live, he's local, he's all Northwest. Lars Larson, weekdays noon to 3, Talk Radio 570, KVI. KVI, want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle, Peter Sound, hope you're on your way to someplace delicious or uh, hanging out at home. Uh, it is uh, getting to the late stages of January. Go figure. And um, we have a red wine, our final, our third and final wine in our fourth and final segment on today's Happy Hour Radio. Stephen Brown of Lirarakis Winery from Crete, the island of Crete in Greece. We had the um, Volana, we had the Daphne, and I'm hoping you got like a, I mean, I could see this being called Rosemary. <laughs> that sounds like ladies' names. Or, uh, it does, and the last one's Mandalari. Mandalari. Which, um, which would be Mandalaria in the rest of Greece, but on Crete it's just Mandalari, or yeah. Mandalari. Wow, interesting. That sounds like very Italian-esque kind of. Word. You know, uh, Crete was part of uh, Venice at one point. It was part of that kingdom, oh. so there is an Italian influence, you know, but mm. that area has been a crossroads for so many cultures. I'm sure. Everyone yeah. was uh, excited to conquer and uh, take over. Um, all right, so this red wine is Mandalari. Mandalari, and Mandalari, I... Uh, 
I have to describe, you know, compare things. To not things related to Molinari. Not related to Molinari. What I compare this wine to is um, Nebbiolo. To me, it's a lot like a Barbaresco or Bartolo, but it doesn't have the face-sucking, brutal tannins uh, that are there. It still has the desiccated fruit. It's got lots of dried rose petal. It's got cinnamon. It's got clove. It's got these deep, dark, wonderful, sort of almost cooked uh, red fruit flavors in there. It's... Uh it's it's a tightly wound wine. There's a lot of core fruit here. The tannins are um, they're firm. They're they're drying, but it's not overly extracted tannin. They're not astringent. And I think when you have super dark fruit, which I find in this wine, um, and also dark red, that some of that tannin to me ends up at you need kind of like toast and jam. The the concentration of fruit here is in the jammy spectrum, like we you talked about a little darker. Did you say stewed or baked? Yeah. 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 And so sometimes you need that toast to really help just give give everything structure on your palate. Acid here, it's um, it's a wily or a guile, beguiling medium plus. It's there, but there's so much other flavor and texture going on in this wine that I'm not actually consumed by the acidity, although it does have a moderate plus length. Yeah, it's it's got great length. Where this wine does amazingly well, I do a lot of... Um, business, surprisingly enough, in, the, in Idaho and in Boise and Sun Valley, especially Sun Valley. This is at, uh, by the glass at a brand new restaurant called Cookbook, which is like the grooviest thing, you know, this this side of, of the Rockies that's happening. But there you get, a, it goes, and in Spokane, another big wine in Spokane, uh, by the glass there. But for people who love game, for people who love venison, this is an amazing wine. It's also a great um uh, wine that goes with good vegetarian or vegan food, anything with roasted nuts, anything with brown rice, anything with, with any of those roasted uh, nut flavors. It, it's an amazing wine for that. And all these wines are vegan, by the way. Um, so not so all wines can no claim that. Certified glass, vegan. No egg white finding. So None just of that. gypsum. Just it, no, they're just racked. They're, they're not racked. even filtered or anything. Yeah. Okay, but I think gypsum's vegan, right? You can eat stones. And- yeah, and uh, yeah, you can do that with clay. <laughs> Diatomaceous earth, you could you know, say it's the bones of the diatoms, and you know that's arguable. But yeah, I think, I think that would you know, be. They're fine. not alive anymore. They're uh, very interesting. And uh, so, what a wonderful is this price point? Same. This one's a touch more like twenty one ish okay. retail. Twenty one, twenty four. Um, Obviously, I think I get large vessel oak on there, which is mostly neutral. Is that Good right? Good call. Yeah, it's the only one that says oak aged on the label, which I kind of wish they would take because we're assuming there's going to be some serious oak. But again, like aging in Fudra, you know, or, or the large uh, Boti in, um, in, uh, in Piedmont, it, it's larger, older, neutral vessels. The Greeks really don't have oak. They never fell in love with oak. Um, so, Aleppo. So it's not their, yeah, exactly. It's not their, their thing. So they don't see their wine needing to be validated by oak from 5,000 miles away. I'm surprised no one's using seawater. Uh, I'm sure some groovy biodynamic guy is going to do it. Yeah. yeah, I only use the top part to get that oil slick. Yeah, just just the top, yeah. <laughs> so fun. Stephen Brown, certified sommelier, and the uh, sommelier over at Omega O's. Oziri. Oziri. Uh, what are the hours? What, you have lunch or just dinner up there? Uh, just dinner right now. Okay. Yeah. And that's uh, Monday through Sunday, or is, is there a yeah, Tuesday? Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. So it's all. Is it all Greek? It's an all Greek wine list. Wow. And it's an all Greek menu, uh, Greek ethic with the food. You'll find my wines all over the city. Though. Any place where you have a sommelier who thinks more about the right wine for the right food, that's where we do great. Ah, so the wines are everywhere. The wines are on the canless wine so list. So a bunch of our friends. Very good. Um, and what's the highest price bottle you have at uh, Osiri? 
Oh, uh, they go way up. Tomas Sukakos, the owner, has reserve wines and mags that you can, you know, you can spend a couple hundred bucks. All right, but that's good. To. I mean, that's if that's the high end, no, can't be afraid. Greeks All like right. to drink. They like to eat. They make it accessible to everybody. You, know, you have ouzo in the flaming. Lots of ouzo, lots of mastija, <laughs> you know, all those great things. We make a cocktail at the little bar I'm working at with that mastija. Hey, uh, Stephen Brown, what a treat. Thank you so much for sh- sharing the uh, Lirarakis wines, Lirarakiswine.com. Lirarakiswine.com, and Perfect. it's a great website. All right, and I hope to see you up there at Omega when I get into, uh, I want to get some garlic going on, some lamb. And- Come on, we got some good garlic. All got right. garlic. <laughs> hey, folks, hope you enjoy the show. We've got a lot more coming up. Uh, I have Dustin Harstead next week, and uh, he's a great bartender with Blind Cocktail Tiger. Blind Tiger Cocktail Company. Hope you enjoy the show again, and life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers! Cheers!